It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What is going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, and I appreciate patrons like Brian and Jonathan, Jim, Theodore, JF, Josh, Sarah and Barry, Chris, Mark, Trent. They all became patrons to the show to help uh, keep the show on the air. And I appreciate that. Also keeping the show on the air, wonderful sponsors such as Growers Hemp. These are North Carolina farmers uh, who banded together in sort of a co-op model. And they said, hey, you know what? Rather than uh, just growing the crops and turning them over to some other company to do the, uh, the manufacturing for CBD products, why don't we do that? And then we have a more of a sustainable model for our farms, for our families. And so they did it. And they made GrowersHemp.com. GrowersHemp is the name of the company. CBD products, for example, the full-spectrum hemp extract added to your daily routine. Uh, what are you looking for? Like maybe immune system resilience, deeper sleep, lower tension, a better quality of life, a balanced state of mind, maybe a positive mental outlook. Uh, go to growershemp.com, check out the products that they have there, and know that people who listen to this show participated in a focus group several months ago uh, as Growers Hemp was launching, and some of the feedback that they provided, like Daniel said, these taste great. Uh, it did help me relax and to sleep. Uh, Jeff said, I sincerely believe that it's allowing me to sleep better, especially when I first get into bed. After 20-something years of only sleeping a couple of hours a night, it's nice to make it through the night. And Paul said the taste of the appleberry extract was pleasant, a combination of a natural hemp taste, yet not overpowered by the fruit flavoring like it's some sort of a cough syrup. Yeah, because that's, you don't want that. Um, try Growers Hemp CBD products from North Carolina farmers to you and your home. Uh, you know, they want to help you on your wellness journey. And by controlling the entire process from seed to shelf, it means you get a better quality at a lower price and you're helping family farms in North Carolina. Growershemp.com. Use my name, promo code Pete, and you'll get 20% off. Growershemp.com. And as with all CBD products, here's the official disclaimer GovCo requires. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of these products has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research, and these products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Nothing I've said is meant as a substance for or alternative to information from your healthcare provider. So consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. Go to growershemp.com. It's about the hemp and not the hype. All right. So going to get into some media uh, ethics today because I know it's, oh, that's an oxymoron and it kind of is. But uh, there is a really interesting case and we've covered several of these stories over the years. And so uh, there's an update from a story that Project Veritas put out. This is now going through the court system. And I have an update on the um, uh, the Planned Parenthood, uh, the undercover videos by the Centers for Medical Progress, Center for Medical Progress, David Delayden, or Delayden, uh, his undercover uh, video that was released. You know, that's been, uh, that's been now almost, what, six years? Six years ago. 
that video was put out. Um, and it's still tied up in the courts. We still don't have all of the video because a judge blocked it all. So we're going to get into that. Um, also, the Asheville City Council, <laughs> their private retreat uh, is not allowed to happen. So <laughs> because media sued, media, uh, media complained. So this is the this is what media is supposed to do to be a watchdog of the government. All right. So we're going to get into all of that. So first off, um, Washington Examiner, piece by Byron York. Uh, A justice of the New York State Supreme Court has allowed a libel suit uh, brought by Project Veritas against the New York Times. The judge is allowing this to go forward. Judge uh, Charles Wood ruled that there is, quote, a substantial basis in law to proceed and that Project Veritas is entitled to try to establish whether the New York Times writers were purposely and or recklessly inaccurate, sloppy, or something else. Which would be biased. That would be <laughs> malicious. See, this is the thing. In order to prove libel, defamation, you, you have to show that, first off, you know, it was wrong. It was, and they knew it was wrong, and they did it uh, with malice. And so this is a very interesting case, and it already has gotten very interesting because the New York Times' defense uh, for uh, how they did the story so far is you can't trust our news reporting to not have opinion embedded in it. (laughs) I'm not kidding. This is their argument. So the lawsuit focuses on two articles that the New York Times wrote about Project Veritas. This was back in September 2020. Um, And it was about, do you remember this story? We covered it on the show. Um, It was about the brother of a city councilman in Minneapolis who had, uh, he, he did a Snapchat video. Remember this? And he was talking about all the ballots he's harvesting and how he's doing it. And Project Veritas got the video and put it out. That's what the New York Times story focused on with the headline, Conservative News Sites Fuel Voter Fraud Misinformation. And another piece was titled, Project Veritas video was a, quote, coordinated disinformation campaign, researchers say. Okay, Um, these vote illegal voting practices that were admitted to on this video uh, took place in Congresswoman Ilhan Omar's congressional district and specifically within the Somali American community of Minneapolis, Minnesota. So Project Veritas had several objections to the stories that the Times wrote. But the most basic objection focused on the New York Times's description of the video as deceptive. How many times have we talked about this over the years? With Project Veritas, all the left ever says about the Project Veritas videos, their their releases, their undercover uh, uh, investigations, and James O'Keefe, the founder and leader of Project Veritas, what do they always say? Deceptively edited video. It's just deceptively edited. It's like, well, show me how it's deceptively edited. Sometimes they'll just say it's edited. Well, every video is edited, in media, unless you're looking at the raw footage of an interview. And and by the way, uh, when I do interviews on this show, I do the full interview. It's like the whole, when when I sit down and I interview somebody and I tell them this, like I do these as live to tape. So I start the recording. I give a countdown to the guest. I say, you know, uh, three, two, one. And then I introduce them and I start off joining me now is, 
And so we start talking. And the entire interview, and what I always say to every guest I ever book, I say, unless there's some, you know, major disruption, like a uh, like a weed whacker goes off in the background or a train whistle goes off or, or our, our connection drops, something like that. Unless there's something catastrophic that messes with the audio, I don't stop the recording. And then the entire thing goes up on the uh, uh, as part of the show. So I don't edit this stuff down. But this is a podcast, right? So I have that flexibility, I have that luxury. Uh, and, and also, um, I mean, yes, there's some added pressure, I guess, on the guests to not you know, mess up. Also me, not to mess up. Um, but also, it, it should give some assurance not just to you, the listener, but also the guest that you're getting the story as it was relayed to me. Like I'm not chopping stuff out and making people say things that they're, that they did not say. Okay. <clears throat> so, uh, that being said, every news organization that puts together packages. So in other words, every single TV news organization that is not doing some sort of long form interview segment, they're editing, right? They're chopping up what someone says, they're pulling out sound bites and they're putting it in a story. And I've done this for years as well. I do this in some podcasts where you hear, you know, I'll, I'll introduce a clip like all of the governor's press conferences. I'll take an audio cl uh, clip of his and I'll put it in. Now, generally speaking, the clips are kind of lengthy, right? I have that luxury. But when I was doing news in the radio, all of our sound bites, we always tried to keep a sound bite no longer than 15 seconds, which then opens the door to the potential for. Uh, manipulation, deceptively edited. Okay, so all of that's just background to say that everybody uh, on the left, their criticism is always the same about Project Veritas. They always accuse them of deceptive video or deceptively editing uh, their video, okay? So to win the libel lawsuit that Project Veritas has filed, they're going to have to prove that not only did some, was some part of the article false, uh, and defamatory, but also that the New York Times published it with, quote, actual malice. And this is defined in the law as, quote, with knowledge that it was false or with reckless disregard of whether it was false or not. Okay, that's actual malice. So you knew it was not true or it didn't matter to you if it was true or not. You had a reckless disregard for, for its veracity. Um, even though, this is again Byron York at the Washington Examiner, even though the stories were published in the news section of the paper, the New York Times argued, their lawyer, listen to this, argued that Project Veritas was not entitled to sue for libel because the opinions expressed were, quote, unverifiable. <laughs> How is... Wait, your job is to verify. You're reporters. If you cannot verify what is and is not true, why should anybody read anything in the New York Times ever again? They go on to say, quote, this is what they say, the lawyer in the court documents, unverifiable expressions of opinion are not actionable and cannot be defamatory. A defamation action must be based on statements of objective fact, not on an expression of opinion, which by definition cannot be true or false. In this politically charged context, the term deceptive is not susceptible to an objective meaning and is therefore a non-actionable opinion. So in other words, the straight news story that described the video as deceptive should not have been accepted as fact. It should have been accepted as mere opinion 
by the reporter pretending to report in an objective manner. Why would anybody trust the New York Times again? If this is your legal rationale, you're walking in the door saying, hey, you know what, by the way, uh, all of our reporters, they inject their opinions throughout their uh, stories, and uh, you can't ever attack them for defamation or libel when they say really outrageous opinions because they're just opinions, even though they're, uh, they're framed and they're embedded in news stories that get the protection of factual reporting. Isn't that a convenient argument? Also embarrassing, I would submit, is that the New York Times relied on Wikipedia to support its use of the term deceptive when describing the video. Why? Here's what they said. Quote, Project Veritas is described on its Wikipedia page and just about everywhere else as an American far-right activist group founded by James O'Keefe that uses undercover techniques to reveal supposed liberal bias and corruption and is known for producing deceptively edited videos about media organizations, left-leaning groups, and debunked conspiracy theories. The New York Times's argument was that if the anonymous authors at Wikipedia called Project Veritas's work deceptively editor, uh, edited, then it has to be true because it's on Wikipedia. <laughs> when did we get to a point where Wikipedia was now trusted as as a source? Right? Have you seen this story? There's a story that's out there. It's several years old. Um, and I actually just I, and I was not I did not pull the story, but I ran across it the other day. And that's why it's top of mind that there's like one guy who like literally lives in the basement of his parents' house, and he's responsible for like a third of all of the Wikipedia entries. How insane is that? Um, but it's as insane as the New York Times using Wikipedia as a source. That's nuts. They also cited a Google search, which cited in its sources, Huffington Post, The Daily Beast, Media Matters, which... I mean, come on, guys. And a Forbes opinion piece. <laughs> These are the search results out of a Google search that the Times cited. The point of this defense was that the paper's reporters were relying on this mishmash of information when they declared the Project Veritas video deceptive. See, this is why the big tech stuff matters. Because the New York Times here, think about this. They're saying the Google search results shows that they can call... James O'Keefe and Project Veritas, you know, people who deceptively edit, that they're deceptive videos. They can say this because Google tells them it's true based on the search results. Well, if Google is putting its thumb on the scale of the search results, and you're only seeing the worst results about Project Veritas at the top, and you're not going to page 4, 5, 6, 10, 40, whatever, you're not seeing the truth. You're just seeing what the Google algorithm, and we're assuming that humans are not putting their thumbs on the scales literally there, right? We're just assuming that the algorithm is finding these articles and telling you that this is the truth. But that's not the truth. Those are just search results. What is the truth? Does Project Veritas deceptively edit their videos? And specifically, this video. Now, I can tell you, I watched the video. They did not deceptively edit the video. So the fact that you are calling them out for deceptively editing a video that they did not, I would think, does rise to the level of an actionable defamation case. Now, can you prove the actual malice part? That's going to be the question. Um, 
This is the New York Times. The reporters believed their stories to be true at the time they published the articles. They knew of Project Veritas's reputation for selectively editing videos, which again, every media outlet does, uh, of the widespread criticisms of the video and the excellent reputations of the independent news outlets. Like Media Matters. <laughs> and the Huffington Post. Uh-huh. As well as fact checkers and researchers that agreed with the assessment of the video contained in the articles. In other words, the reporters had no reason not to believe what the Huffington Post or Media Matters had said. That's their argument. So they just passed it off as their own conclusion. Rather than saying Huffington Post and Media Matters say this, therefore, they didn't say that. They just said they're deceptively edited. But what about doing some reporting on their own? It was not necessary, Byron York says. Project Veritas also alleges that defendants failed to investigate further by seeking comment from Project Veritas or the individuals in the video. <laughs> so they didn't even ask Project Veritas for a statement. But it is well established that failing to investigate or verify statements, the lawyers for the New York Times say, uh, does not, as a matter of law, establish actual malice. No, but it establishes that you're terrible journalists. Why would you not even ask for, uh, for a response, right? Why would you not ask for a response for comments? I don't understand. Just like I don't understand people who don't use Rowena Patton for buying or selling a home. Why? What's up with that, right? I mean, maybe you don't want a response either when you list your home. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe you really don't want to sell, so you, you list it, like, on the down low, or a Fizbo, and um, that's a for sale by owner. Uh, or you're on one of those apps. They're like, oh, we'll do it all for you. Whatever. Yeah, I don't know about you, but if I'm, you know, shelling out half a million dollars for a purchase, I, I would kind of like somebody there <laughs> rather than just some app's algorithm. Anyway, Rowena Patton. Christy and I are using her to buy our house, and uh, we could not be happier. We just talked to her yesterday, as a matter of fact. Um, if you are thinking of buying or selling, one phone number, 333-4483, one website, mountainhomehunt.com. It's Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, okay? She, we, we got into discussion about this uh, yesterday. Like, the, the team that she has assembled and the, the training program that she created and has now implemented, like, this is why she calls them, like, all-stars, is because they become so good at what they do. It's why she outsells 99% of the realtors in the entire state, okay? Give her a call, get your house sold fast, and for more money. She has uh, buyers lined up, and if you're buying, she has homes in all price points. 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com. Give her a call and then start packing. There was a third argument that the New York Times used. There have been so many attacks on Project Veritas that their reputation is already ruined. So therefore... They cannot sue us for defamation. <laughs> so this is this is the argument that we smeared them so much and for so long that now we can smear them. That's their logic here. Isn't that an amazing argument? That's the, that's the one they make. Now, the judge did not agree with these arguments. He did not. The paper's ethics policies, he says, prohibit news reporters from injecting their subjective opinions into news stories, right? Your own ethics policies say reporters should not do this thing that you're now saying these reporters did. The judge was also unimpressed by the array of sources cited by the New York Times 
to prove Project Veritas's reliance on deception. He said, quote, while this is a lengthy media list, polling does not decide truth nor speak to evidence. He's exactly right. Thank goodness. Like, it's rare, like, when you come across a judge that has that kind of common sense. Like, yeah, that's fantastic. They all don't like him. I don't care. That's polling doesn't make it true. Next, Wood denied the New York Times' motion to dismiss this case. So it's now going to go forward. Uh, he, he said, quote, the facts submitted by Veritas could indicate more than standard garden variety media bias and support, it could support a plausible inference of actual malice. It's still early in the proceedings, Byron York says, and Project Veritas might fail in the next round. It's a very, very hard uh, thing to do is to win uh, a libel case. But the judge's analysis does sound uh, pretty bad for the New York Times. <laughs> now, uh, the paper faces what could be a grueling period of discovery. Project Veritas is entitled to look into the workings of the New York Times. And, gee, I wonder what they might find as they go delving the emails of these reporters and management. In the end, the judge's opinion, quote, could prove a critical shot across the bow for many in the media that the blurring of opinion and fact could come at a high price, says Jonathan Turley, the George Washington University law professor. Now, Mark Hemingway at Real Clear Politics, uh, he says... In 1964, this is a great point, uh, the New York Times was party to a landmark Supreme Court case that now bears its name. This is New York Times v. Sullivan. And that was a very important victory for civil rights, and it established broad protections against libel lawsuits that have protected generations of journalists. Today, the New York Times finds itself fending off libel lawsuits by making legal arguments that actually undermine the entire concept of factual reporting. And judges are now citing politically motivated hostility and eroding journalism standards as justification for rolling back the generous libel protections that were established more than 50 years ago. So think of this. The New York Times 50 years ago, they're the reason why we have these libel protections. But in their arguments now, they could very well lead to the dismantling of those very protections because they want to be able to argue that libel laws protect them from lawsuit, but it also allows them to smear people when with with falsehoods and um, and judges are taking notice of that destructive course. The two reporters here, this is the argument in uh, the uh, the lawyer or sorry, the judges. Uh, uh, ruling, Charles Wood. He says, the, the reporters were driven by resentment and journalistic competitiveness after New York Times's uh, much-hyped story about President Trump's tax returns was upstaged by Project Veritas's video report, as well as by their own political biases against Veritas's perceived right leanings, so they set out to discredit Veritas's reporting. Now, that's not his finding, I should say, that he was summarizing the complaint. But that's the actual malice portion, right? That speaks to the motivation. Why would they do this? Was it simply like that they're just right-wing or uh, they're just left-wing reporters? They hate the right-wing Project Veritas, and so they just call it deceptive because it's just political? Or is there something else going on there? 
because remember, the New York Times had gotten Trump's tax returns and they made this huge deal about it. Oh, my gosh, smoking gun. This is it. We're going to take him out. Right. All this stuff about his tax returns. And then it gets upstaged, first off, because it was really a nothing burger. But then uh, Project Veritas comes out with this video and all the oxygen gets sucked out of the New York Times story. So there is a motivation there, not you know, not only the political bias against Veritas, but also that you had what you thought was this awesome story, and then Veritas bigfoots your uh, your story. Project Veritas's claim that the Times was upset with it for upstaging the paper's report is not mere conjecture either. Okay, because the New York Times initial story accused O'Keefe of trying to distract from its report on Trump's taxes. <laughs> Their story says it. Quote, Mr. O'Keefe and his group, Project Veritas, appear to have made an abrupt decision to release the video sooner than planned after the New York Times published a sweeping investigation of President Trump's tax returns. So they are directly connecting O'Keefe's publishing the video with their story. So they saw it as connected. So if they see it as connected, are they trying to minimize O'Keefe's story? So their story gets more clicks, more traction, more focus. The judge wrote, quote, the articles that are the subject of this action call the video deceptive, but the dictionary definitions of disinformation and deceptive that were provided by the defendants in this case, the New York Times, they certainly actually apply to the reporter's failure to note that they injected their opinions in news articles, which they're now claiming they did. Think about this. The reporters are claiming that they put their opinions into these articles. And while at the same time arguing that O'Keefe was behaving in a deceptive way in order to push disinformation and the definitions of deceptive and disinformation actually describe the actions by the New York Times reporters, which is what they admit they're doing. So they demand protection (laughs) for doing the thing that they accuse O'Keefe of doing, but they still want also to be held uh, as a credible source of information. Despite calling Project Veritas's report deceptive uh, and disinformation, the Times reporting did not actually disprove any of the specific allegations in the report. Instead, the reporters quoted third-party sources saying that the nature and the timing of the report made it similar to disinformation campaigns. Not that it was, just that it was similar to one. Now, the judge is not the only one suggesting that the press is getting complacent here about uh, defamation and libel. I'll tell you what that is about in a second. Let me tell you about Old Grouch's military surplus right now. This is where you need to go to get all of your gear for all of your outdoor adventuring, okay? Whether it's hiking or camping uh, or you're a prepper or you want a go bag just in case stuff gets bad and you need to head for the hills, you need a go bag. Everybody should, by the way. Everybody should have a two-week supply of, of essential items, and that includes first aid kits. It includes gun accessories, uh, ammo cans, great addition for uh, storage purposes as well. Go see Tim at Old Grouch's Military Surplus. He's where he's always been. Uh, This is downtown Clyde for 30 plus years now on Main Street across the street from the anti-aircraft gun. The shop is open Monday through Saturday and 24-7 at oldgrouch.com and tell him that I sent you. So the same week that uh, this judge in New York rebuked the New York Times, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that a human rights group was not guilty of libeling two officials from Liberia, accused them of taking bribes. Okay, the court said 
that it could not be proven that the defendants were guilty of being motivated by actual malice. Okay, but there was a dissent by federal judge Lawrence Silberman, and uh, this dissent calls for reevaluating that standard of actual malice, because he says, quote, the First Amendment guarantees a free press to foster a vibrant trade in ideas, but a biased press can distort that marketplace. And when the media has proven its willingness, if not eagerness, to so distort, it is a profound mistake to stand by unjustified legal rules that serve only to enhance the press's power. He favorably cited similar remarks made by Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas in 2019 about the need to reassess the libel standards. The New York Times is also currently dealing with the ongoing lawsuit from former Alaska governor and vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin. Now, think about how long these cases have been going, right? Years. Um, This was a 2017... um, editorial in the paper that eventually that, that was eventually corrected but it originally said that the link to political incitement from palin was clear from the 2011 shooting of congresswoman gabby giffords when in fact there was no proof that the shooter who was you know a severely mentally ill guy um that he, he didn't have any political affiliation he wasn't even aware of any of sarah palin's uh insightful rhetoric that the new york times tried to connect to the shooting Remember the map? This this came from Sarah Palin had posted a graphic or something on Facebook or whatever or on her website. And it was like, OK, here are the congressional districts we're targeting in the election. And it put little bullseyes like the little round circle with the with the cross through it, you know, and put those uh, on these different congressional districts. And one of them was Gabby Gifford's district. And then this guy shot up a supermarket where she was appearing. She was at like some strip mall center. And uh, he, you know, murdered a bunch of people, tried to murder her because he thought the UN was controlling language and that this was like thought control or whatever. He was mentally disturbed. Okay. Well, everybody went out and blamed. I don't even know like where, who made the connection with that map, but like the idea that that was the reason why this guy shot Gabby Giffords and the others, it was, it was nuts almost as nuts as the shooter and uh the new york times in 2017 they rehashed this lie because there's no proof as i mentioned earlier there's no proof that there was any connection that the guy never had even seen the map um no proof whatsoever but the new york times puts it out there and sarah palin sued this is now going on four years this now this is how long it takes to win a case if you've been defamed think about that so who's going to invest that kind of time and energy and money, right? Um, a federal judge ordered a jury trial, by the way, in that uh, Palin case. Next up, uh, this is from thefederalist.com, a piece by Madeline Osborne. Late one Friday in July 2015, District Judge William Oreck of San Francisco issued a restraining order blocking the release of the undercover videos at the National Abortion Federation, or the NAF. This was their convention. 2015, six years ago, this occurred. Six years ago, the, uh, the videos got, uh, uh, got blocked from public view. These videos showed Planned Parenthood employees negotiating the sale of aborted fetus body parts. After nearly six years, more than 200 hours of that footage have yet to be seen. 
but that's now going to be up for deliberation. Since the first undercover footage was released, the Center for Medical Progress and its founder, David DeLayden, have been fighting legal battles with both the NAF and Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Luckily for both the NAF and the Planned Parenthood folks, the federal judge, this guy Oric, uh, presiding over the cases, uh, is more than friendly to the pro-abortion causes. He was nominated to his position by former President Obama. He was a major donor to and bundler for Obama's campaigns. Um, but more importantly than that, both Oric and his wife are longtime donors to San Francisco's Good Samaritan Family Resource Center. That's an oxymoronic name if ever there was one, but uh, he is uh, where he's uh, he was a board member. He helped fund and open a Planned Parenthood clinic on the site as part of this center. That clinic sold fetal tissue to Stem Express, a for-profit wholesaler that was exposed by the videos that he's now ruling on. His wife is an outspoken abortion advocate, um, and uh, she has uh, she has commented on Delayden's videos on social media, calling them domestic terrorism. So one might be led to believe that the judge probably should step down, should recuse himself from this case, but no, no, not Judge Oreck. He says he can be impartial. Despite attempts by DeLayden to have him removed from their cases, he has refused to step down or, or even disclose his relationship with the Planned Parenthood Clinic. Six years later, DeLayden is still fighting in court. Two cases in particular. Um, the first, Planned Parenthood $16 million civil lawsuit. So Planned Parenthood is suing DeLayden. Um, and... Uh, that just recently, uh, the delayed in folks in his Center for Medical Progress just recently filed an appeal in the federal Ninth Circus uh, Court of Appeals, arguing that it should be reversed on First Amendment grounds because Planned Parenthood won the first round. What's curious about this lawsuit, says Madeline Osborne, uh, is more importantly how it differs from the other lawsuit brought by the National Abortion Federation. So there are two different groups, right? Planned Parenthood and the NAF, and they're both suing. So Planned Parenthood, their case. Uh, is uh, they sued him for fraud, trespass, unlawful recording, and breach of contract. Okay, so again, fraud, trespass, unlawful recording, and breach of contract. You notice what they did not sue him for? Defamation, right? By not suing him for defamation, this was a strategy, okay? Because uh, that would have brought up the issue of whether the content of the videos was false or defamatory. So Planned Parenthood has never denied the truth of what was revealed in those undercover videos. Now, the NAF, they're taking the opposite approach. They agreed to drop most of their claims, asking only for a summary judgment on its breach of contract claim and seeking a permanent ban on the videos from ever being released solely because of the way it will harm their reputation. So they are making a defamation argument. They believe Delayden's going to deceptively edit the footage to lie about abortion practices. Unlike Planned Parenthood, NAF is directly putting at issue the truth or falsity of the videos, Osborne writes at thefederalist.com. At a recent hearing via video, uh, February 17th, Oric focused on whether he should make a preliminary injunction he issued back in 2016, whether he should make that permanent and keep the videos out of the public sphere, okay? 
the real question I'm interested in is the scope of the injunction, he said. All right. In 2016, he justified the blocking of the videos from public view by claiming that the safety of the abortion workers outweighs Delayden's First Amendment rights. The judge also stated that he reviewed both the transcripts and the recordings of the videos in question and determined that he found, quote, no evidence of actual criminal wrongdoing. Now, here's the problem for the judge is that a doctor, an actual abortion doctor for 50 years has also viewed the video and was called as a witness, an expert witness to testify on behalf of David DeLayden and the Center for Medical Progress. And what that doctor says is there is no question that what occurs in the videos is illegal. So who's right? Is it the judge or is it the doctor? Dr. Forrest Smith. The problem for Oric is that Smith's report directly contradicts what he said in that 2016 gag order that he found no criminal wrongdoing. Okay, so it pits Oric, a well-known pro-abortion donor, against one of the country's longest practicing abortion doctors. (laughs) So what do you do? Who, who, who are you going to protect here? How do you protect them? Something's got to give. It remains unclear how or even when Oric is going to make a decision on this case, but I will keep you posted. Much like I keep you posted on the deals going on at General Equipment Rental, um, because they've got deals right now, for example, on the Husqvarna stand-on mowers, specifically the V548 or V554. You can get a $1,000 instant rebate when you buy one of these. And if you put it together with another deal that's a 25% off the MSRP for the purchase of a nine-point fleet item, you add them together at General Equipment Rental, and it's $3,500 off the price of a Husqvarna stand-on mower. So you get the legendary power, performance, and reliability of a Husqvarna at $3,500 off. You got a big piece of property? Stand-on mower? You know, people are like, well, I want to sit and mower. Well, you know, sitting is the new smoking, I've been told. Uh, but also... More importantly, like if you're a commercial landscaper, you you know do this, you want to stand on mower, you want to add to the fleet or replace some old equipment, this is the time to do it. Do it before the end of April because th- these deals go away. And these are the kinds of deals that you get at General Equipment Rental because they are the official licensed Husqvarna Outdoor Power Equipment Sales and Service Provider. They are also the same for Honda, by the way. So if you are looking to replace some of your yard equipment this spring, this is the time to do it. Head on over to General Equipment Rental. Tell them that you heard it here on the show. I appreciate that. Uh, it's where I'm going to be going to get my equipment. And maybe you just want to rent some stuff for some projects for the springtime. They're totally fine with that. They can hook you up with all sorts of equipment for whatever project you are doing, big or small, residential, commercial, whatever. They've got the tools that you need. General Equipment Rental. Check all their inventory out at the website, generalrents.com. That's generalrents.com. And think outside your toolbox. So here's a story out of Asheville where the city council was planning to have uh, its annual retreat. Uh, They didn't have one last year because of the pandemic, but they've got one this year and they got a new uh, city council makeup. But they tried to hold a a private, a secret portion of the retreat (laughs) during the retreat. And a couple of media outlets were not too happy with that idea. You had uh, WLOS, I believe, Mountain Express, Carolina Public Press. There were a bunch of them not happy with this idea. And uh, so they went to court. 
Buncombe County Superior Court Judge Warren uh, says that the entire retreat is an official meeting and should be open to the public. Now, I don't understand why people think this should be open to the public. I mean, really, like just because it's all the city council members and city staff and there's some, you know, taxpayer funded facilitators that have been brought in and there's an agenda I don't see why you would think this is a meeting. Why would this be considered a, a meeting and therefore, you know, open under the public meetings law? Uh, in fact, the attorney for the city has been arguing, a guy by the name of Brad Branham, has been arguing that it's not a meeting, but rather an informal gathering. It's sort of like the cages that the kids are being kept in down at the border are not cages. They are simply jail-like detention facilities. These, This is not a meeting. This is an informal gathering that just happens to occur during this larger meeting that is a meeting. Okay. WLOS reports that on uh, Monday, March 29th, several local media organizations, including Carolina Public Press, took legal action in the matter. Represented by attorney Amanda Martin, the coalition of media outlets argued that the council's private portion of the retreat could not be considered a social gathering. <laughs> because there would be facilitators in attendance, it's paid for with public money, and that the gathering would be taking place in a public facility. Now, uh, there is a protest planned, because of course there is, this is Asheville, and if you don't know anything about Asheville, uh, there are professional protesters in Asheville. Like, if you, any day that you come to Asheville, you go through right downtown Asheville, you're going to see protesters. It's just, they're always there. So the Asheville Solidarity Network they were encouraging people to, quote, bring pots and pans, bucket drums and any other noisemakers ahead of the city council retreat because they're going to be discussing the police department's budget. Exactly. So the Asheville now I, I thought this was interesting that WLOS does not. Uh, tell us who this Asheville Solidarity Network is. Uh, they just call them an organization, <laughs> an Asheville organization. Well, this Asheville organization is an anti-free market, anti-capitalist, pro-Marxist, socialist organization. Okay, that's who this organization is. And they are demanding defunding of the police department. Here is the Carolina Public Press story by Kate Martin, uh, who says that the Asheville City Council members uh, are going to talk with two facilitators uh, hired by the city. And the purpose behind this secret retreat was to build a solid foundation for success. Uh, they tried to call this the informal gathering, saying it's not subject to the state's open meetings law. Uh, the lawsuit was filed by Carolina Public Press, Mountain Express, The Citizen Times, Blue Ridge Public Radio. OK, so WLOS apparently was not involved. Um, and Amanda Martin, the attorney for this coalition, said, I never once invited a facilitator to any social gathering that I had. <laughs> Wait, what? Hey, wait, that's not normal behavior. I thought it I thought it was totally normal to bring facilitators, have an agenda. That's what I do. Like game night, you know, have all the friends over. Oh, of course, pre-pandemic and all have the friends over, I had an agenda, an itinerary, right? Had facilitators that were there. According to the retreat agenda, city council members will quote, discuss strengthening alignment, teamwork, and trust. Quote, forming a success compact and forming working agreements. 
The fact that the retreat has an agenda at all is evidence of the gathering's formal nature. After the plaintiffs suggested that city officials seek the advice of the state attorney general, Josh Stein, the city attorney, Brad Branham, instead decided to ask the opinion of a UNC School of Government professor, Freda Bluestein, who is like known throughout the state for her expertise in open meeting law, but all sorts of, you know, local governing and state governance laws. Okay, so she is an expert. um, And so instead of asking the attorney general's office for an opinion, he goes to Freda Bluestein. Bluestein says the planned meeting constitutes public business that could not be conducted in closed session. Bluestein said she and Branham disagreed on their interpretations of the law. So they went to this expert and the expert said, yeah, no, you can't do that. (laughs) And so they just ignored her and tried to do it anyway. Even if we open the meeting to the public, said the city attorney Branham, they would not be able to participate. I love this idea that somehow or another, the public has to be allowed to participate in a, in a public meeting. That's not necessarily the case. That's a, that's a distraction. That's, it's, that's not really a relevant argument. It, you're having a retreat. You guys are having a discussion. It's like an open committee meeting uh, of the city council. The public doesn't get to weigh in. There's no public comment period in every single meeting. There's no requirement for that. So uh, he says that they would only be able to listen. Okay, fine. So they get to listen. He said on topics of an important and private nature, these things would be discussed as a justification. He cited these uh, to keep the meeting closed, as well as the ongoing coronavirus pandemic and the possibility of, quote, someone that could be disruptive that could show up. Well, then you kick them out. I, I don't understand this. Like you're ha- and By the way, they're having this <laughs> meeting at the Civic Center, what is now called the uh, Harris Cherokee Center Asheville. Well, they got the naming rights last year or two years ago. Um, Yeah, they got it right before the pandemic. Like they put their name on it and then everything shut down. But um, yeah, so this is at the Civic Center. It's at an arena. Okay, it's at an arena. If you're telling me you can't figure out how to have a retreat for seven city council members (laughs) and what a dozen staffers. So what are we looking at? Okay, how about this? 50 people. I'll give you 50 people. You can't figure out how to do a a, uh, a retreat, a meeting at an arena that holds thousands and you got 50 people like what are you, Governor Roy Cooper at a press conference? You can't figure this out. Come on now. You're better than that city council. <laughs> so Branham, the city attorney Branham said Asheville has four relatively new council members and the get to know you session may include disclosures of information that council members would prefer to remain private. Questions about one's siblings, family and background. Okay. Why are you doing that? Why would you be to- why would you be discussing this at a retreat like this? Why would you be doing this? Now, all right. And I know how this is going to sound, but the city council is now comprised entirely of women. Okay. Now, maybe there is some desire for like uh, knowledge about relationships and, and people's families and all that. Maybe that's different for women than men. I don't know. I've never heard of this kind of uh, focus for some kind of a get to know your retreat topic for facilitators. That's look, if you want to be. Uh, friends with your colleagues on a city body, a city council, a county commission, any legislative body, any committee work, right? 
you got to go and do the work yourself. You, you know, you go out, you reach out, you make some phone calls to your new colleagues, and you say, hey, how, how about we go grab some dinner? Why don't we meet? Why don't we discuss stuff? Get to know these people that you're going to be working with, right? If you're interested to know this stuff about the people, I mean, there's only seven of you. Like, I don't understand why this is the job of a facilitator, taxpayer-funded facilitator, to draw out all of these personal stories and biographies from all of the council members. Like, were you not just watching the political campaign that they ran? Why don't you go to their website, read it up on their bio, and then ask them some questions when you're, you know, in, in a break or something. This is not the job of, of, a, of a facilitator to be dragging this stuff out into the public. Now, um, on the Asheville Solidarity Network and their protest, um, I mentioned earlier that they are, in fact, a socialist group. They're explicitly, actually, explicitly anti-free market, anti-capitalism. They say that it is a horizontally organized collective started on May Day 2016 which is the first indication that they're Marxists, right? Anybody that connects themselves to May Day, that is a Marxist holiday, okay? Um, and they are focused on direct action and solidarity for and by local working class and low-income folks. I would point out that the protest here um, was organized on Facebook. <laughs> the socialists organized their defund the police march on Facebook, uh, and they say last year, 28% of the Asheville Police Department left with a third of the entire patrol division bolting. This is what defiance in the streets and months of public outrage does, and it explains a lot, like why APD backed off protest crackdowns late last year. They simply don't have the numbers. They say determination and anger cut a notoriously racist police force far more effectively than any elected official ever could. So they're crediting themselves with their protests leading to the defund pressure campaign leading to APD quitting. A lot of these officers quitting because they desire no cops. Now, I would submit that is so they can then rule the roost. They then could be empowered. They can then bully people and act as a police force, much like the Chaz Chop Zones, you know. Now, that's just speculative on my part, but socialists do have a way about them. <laughs> I'm just throwing it out there. Just throwing this out there, too. If you need a new mattress, go to Mattress Man. Christy and I went to Mattress Man. That's where we got our bed. We replaced our queen-size bed with a king-size bed. We love it. It's a memory foam mattress, although it has been about a decade now. So uh, we'll, we're fixing to get uh, a new mattress soon as well, probably after we move into the new house, uh, just so we don't have to move the mattress. Now, we could move the mattress, and then uh, Mattress Man will take away the mattress for us, but if we could just, like, leave it, you know, when we move out, that might be preferable. <laughs> so we're, we're still deciding what to do on that. Uh, but if you're thinking of a new mattress, go to Mattress Man. they got four locations in Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville. they got a new store on Airport Road in Arden. Go check that out, or go to their website, mattressmanstores.com. And uh, tell them that you heard it here on the show. I appreciate that. They are the exclusive retailer of the Biltmore Collection made by Restonic right here in North Carolina. And these are the beds that are in the hotel and the inn at the Biltmore Estate. Uh, they have five-star local delivery service. They ship nationwide. And they have a 120-day comfort guarantee. Mattressmanstores.com. Experience the difference at Mattress Man. Buy local and sleep better. So, 
Uh, finally, I mentioned the other day that the Vance Monument in downtown Asheville's uh, the city council voted to take it down, and now they're getting sued. According to the story at the Citizen Times, written by Joel Burgess, the Democrat with the byline, he says a Confederate history group represented by an attorney who fought for the remains of the Ku Klux Klan's first Grand Dragon in a Memphis park is suing to stop the removal of the city's monument to a Confederate governor. Okay, first off, People in print write like this, these long run-on sentences. Most people do not speak like this, but people in media, in journalism, in the print form, they they write like this. I still don't know why, but they do. And uh, number one. So number two, though, more importantly, he finds this to be the most important information because in journalism, you put the most important information in the first sentence. And he thinks the most important information is the fact that this lawyer representing this local Confederate group also represented some Confederate group in Memphis that was trying to keep them from removing a monument with remains for uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest, a Civil War Confederate guy uh, who also happened to start the KKK. So uh, that same lawyer is representing these guys. Joel Burgess thinks that's the most important piece of information. But here's what happened. The Society for the Historical Preservation of the 26th North Carolina Troops, Inc., filed a lawsuit against the city because... The city had a contract with this group that raised like $138,000 to fix the Vance Monument a few years ago. And so now this group is saying, you're in breach of contract because of this 2015 deal that you signed with us. We never would have gone to our people and donors and raised this money for you to fix up this obelisk, this monument, only to tear it down. The city attorney, Brad Branham, says that this has become a public safety threat in the community, so it's got to come down. Quote, On numerous occasions, the monument has been vandalized, and the city has received significant threats that members of the public will attempt to topple the structure. So, here's the message, everybody. Moral of the story is that if you threaten people or property in Asheville, you will get your way. I don't see what possibly could go wrong with setting this kind of a precedent letting the mob that is trying to defund all the police and celebrating when all the cops quit, claiming credit for that, uh, and now they're threatening to destroy stuff and you're going to do what they say to avoid those threats from becoming reality, but there's no police force to stop any of it, so, gee, what could go wrong? That's a wrap for the episode. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Go to the Pete and subscribe. Talk with you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.